Hello and welcome into the PHNX Rising podcast presented by the DraftKings Sportsbook app, America's number one sportsbook app. I'm Owen Evans coming to you on location at the USL Media Meetings in Louisville, Kentucky. This episode going to be a little bit different to our usual. We've got a few special guests to speak with. First up is USL Super League president hailing from just south on the I-10, Amanda Vandervoort. Okay, so Amanda, thank you for joining me. How are you doing? Hi, Owen. I'm great. Um, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Okay, so let's talk a little bit, obviously, later about the Super League. But first, why don't we kick in a bit with growing up in Tucson. So what is it that brought you to this sport in particular as a kid? Oh, as a kid? Uh, to Tucson? My, um, yeah, I grew up in Tucson. I'm, I'm, I'm actually, I was born in Washington State. My parents divorced when I was seven. And mom, me, and my big brother all moved down to, to Tucson. So... Uh, yeah, I, I was there. Yeah, I mean, I guess my earliest childhood memories are backing up into a cactus <laughs> and realizing I am not in Washington State any longer. So <laughs> at least my earliest childhood memories from Tucson, certainly. Um, yeah, and then I grew up playing soccer in the in the summer heat as a goalkeeper, and I would just stand there and sweat in my gloves and my long sleeve shirts. Um, but I absolutely loved it. As a kid, come on, you grew up in Tucson. Why would you play an outdoor sport? <laughs> Why? You know what? I started actually playing soccer a little bit later. Um, all my friends were playing. Um, I, I had a stint in the fifth grade, but I was shocking. Um, so then I, I came back a little while later in eighth grade, actually. All my friends were playing. So it was really like the community of soccer that, that drew me in and, and kept me going. And then my competitive nature took over and I wanted to be, you know, the starting goalkeeper at my high school. So... Um, yeah, I mean, it was, it was, uh, it was never an option not to play because all my friends did. And then growing up, you didn't really have, I mean, there was the kind of the predecessor to the W League did exist at that point, but there wasn't a real professional league for, for women at that point. So who did you look to then for all models? You know what? For me, soccer was a participation sport. It was more about community um, and and more about playing it than it was about um, the role models and the opportunity because um, they just didn't exist in in the game at that time. From my perspective, right? We I don't even know if we had access to uh, television, you know, televised games um, at that point. So. You know, I was I went to camp to soccer camps, and I got to meet um, amazing people. I went to Tony DeChico's goalkeeper school um, out in California a couple of times, and I got to meet a lot of amazing people in the game uh, through that avenue. And I think that piqued my interest in in kind of learning more and what is that next level look like. Um, coaches and and players from across the country in the collegiate game at that time, um, but. Yeah, like I said, I mean, it was, a, it, 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 was, it was also the early days of, like, ODP and um, competitive regional soccer where we were thrown together on teams with people from Wyoming and Utah and Nevada and Arizona to try and make some sort of, um, I don't know, conglomerate team of all-stars, I guess. And, and, you know, we always lost to Southern California. So <laughs> I think... I think uh, they've got a long history there of, of you know, tremendous soccer, so. And then fast forwarding a little bit, of course, you go off, you play collegiately, you end up getting into coaching. When you were coaching and you've done all your badges and all that, did you really see yourself moving out of coaching and and over to the kind of administrative side that that you're now all involved in? 
I love coaching. I love it um, because of the community. I'll always go back to that community. Um, I love player development. I love working with humans um, and seeing seeing their growth because I find growth in myself that way. Um, but to be really honest, I didn't love the the six a.m. training sessions, you know. Um, and uh, in the end, I I did always know that there would be a path for me in um, in the industry that wasn't coaching, but I didn't quite know what that was. So I studied communications, and then I studied educational technology. My way into pro soccer was actually working with C-suite executives, teaching them. Um, how how to engage on social media, how to use digital technologies to reach consumers um, back in the early days of Twitter, for example. And I think that was the foundation of how my my um, you know, my executive profession evolved, I guess you could say. Um, my career has really like paralleled the growth of the social media and digital media and tech. Look, here we are doing a podcast, right? Like, <laughs> and I'm on the other side of the mic these days, which is, uh, you know, which is cool. It's super cool. So yeah, I mean, I love the coaching. I, I believe in coaches. I was the president of our coaches association. Like I'm a huge advocate, um, for the role that coaches play in, in football. I think it's critical. Um, and I'm, I'm proud to, to have served in that capacity. And I do believe that in the boardroom, it's equally as important to have executives who know the business and the financials and the fundamentals as it is to have people on the sporting side. So how do you end up in, in this particular role then, you know, as president of the Super League? Well, I was in, um, I left MLS in 2019. I was at Major League Soccer 10 years. So I was the vice president of fan engagement there, um, doing like our direct to consumer marketing, um, which would make sense given the story I just told you about my, my background. Um, but I, I felt that I wanted um, a bit more focus on international football. I really wanted to be in the women's game, and I wanted to work more closely with players. So I went to Europe. Um, I was living in Amsterdam as a chief women's football officer at FIFPRO, which is the Global Players Union, where I really um, you know, got to know a whole different side of the industry. Um, and it was, it, was super, it was super compelling. But then, of course, COVID happened, and I moved back to America I was debating, um, yeah, what, what was that next step for me personally? And when I started talking to the USL about their vision in women's soccer, um, building the pathway, building the professional league um, here, it was just, uh, you know, it kind of brought together all of my passions, my purpose, um, and my professional experience. Um, and I, I, you know, I think this vision of building a pathway and a... And a um, you know, aspirational league for women in this country is something that um, lights me up. Of course, we're just around a year away now from the launch. Uh, but we still don't know a huge amount of details. When the W League launched, it was a pretty Eastern league, really, when you look at it. No, nothing going on out West. Is that something that's going to be a little bit different then with the uh, launch of the Super League? Well, let me talk to you about the W League and how why we launched it that way. So the W League is an amateur league, right? It's pre-professional. So that means... Um, none of the players are paid or, or on um, professional contracts, right? And that's intentional because they, it complements their college season. So we were very conscious of expenses 
in developing that model for the ownership group, right? And so we developed the W League in divisions where you could drive basically to, to your matches. So the W League was built in seven divisions, east of the Mississippi, outside of Minnesota, um, east of the Mississippi, um, you know, with, with that in mind, knowing that now we're on the quick path to um, expansion, westward expansion of the W League. But again, we're doing it kind of in these divisional pods, I guess you could say, um, to mitigate costs and, and create, um, I don't know, I think there's something special about those regional rivalries that you can create in that way. So, um, yeah, so the, the W League, so the Super League um, will... No, it'll be, I mean, it'll be a national league, yeah, across the country. Um, and like you said, yeah, we're rolling out next year. So then, just looking at it now, the, the picture of, of women's soccer after you've launched that league, you've got the W League, multiple other leagues are kind of just under there and NWSL on top. What kind of a difference do you make, think it makes then for girls growing up and being able to see all of these different options at the elite levels of the game here? Well, listen, there's 40,000, let's just start at the college level, there's 40,000 women playing college soccer in this country today, and there's only 300 jobs for them in, in the pro game, right? So um, there's just this incredible delta between the opportunities that exist and the number of women that are, you know, that are, are experienced and could have the potential to play at that level. Um, and then you go a level deeper and you start to look at the, the vast number of girls um, playing in this country. Um, millions and millions of girls um, that now will have the opportunity, you know, um, to see professional soccer um, in their in their community, right? I think today it's still a little uh, distant for girls to really connect to the professional game because it's in a lot of cases in this country so far away from them, far away from their towns, their communities, and so, you know, through the Super League. Um, and through the W League both, um, we can create this, um, you know, high level of soccer in, in rich communities across the country and give, to your point, little girls, um, you know, the opportunity to aspire to, to be a professional soccer player. Well, I could ask you a million more questions, I'm sure, about where the Super League is going. But <laughs> We're getting the signal. We're, We're getting, getting the, the signal, signal over there. So, uh, Amanda, thank you for your time. <laughs> yeah, this is great. Thanks, Ellen. Really appreciate it. Well, that was USL Super League president Amanda Vandervoort. We're going to take a quick break now and talk about our friends at OGs. For those of you enjoying or more realistically enduring the summer back in Arizona, OGs is making a little bit brighter. They've just launched their first ever limited edition seasonal flavor, Pina Colada, a perfect pineapple and creamy coconut blend. Check out OGs online at ogsbrands.com. That's O-G-E-E-Z brands.com. And you can find them on Instagram too at ogsbrands. You'll find their products at your local dispensary. But remember, you do have to be 21 or older to purchase. Next up, we have a relatively new face to the league office or the league's New York office, I should say. When I say the name Lalas, I'm sure a certain face comes to mind, but we're more interested in his brother, Greg. Greg is himself a former player and is now USL's chief marketing officer. Greg, thanks for taking the time to speak to me. Um, can you just give us a little bit of an overview as to what exactly it is that you do in, in your position here with the league? 
yeah, well, it's a it's a new uh, position at the league, um, chief marketing officer. So um, my main uh, objective and goal is how do I uh, market the league, grow the fan base, um, you know, in, improve the awareness and the engagement of the league with its fans and, and working with the clubs on that as well. So it's thinking about it from a national perspective, but then also thinking about how does it support what the clubs are doing. Um, and, you know, I think having uh, a very community-focused uh, engagement sort of marketing plan is exactly what we need to do. We want to be as impactful as possible in our local communities. And then how can I work to help them sort of tie it all into a, a maybe a larger uh, marketing and engagement plan? So how did you end up in this role? How did I end up in this role? Um, well, so my previous role was the um, vice president of content at uh, Major League Soccer. So I spent 10 years um, building out the digital ecosystem and a lot of the fan engagement uh, stuff that we did at MLS um, over about a decade. And then before that, I was a journalist, um, a soccer journalist for about 10 years. Um, and not just soccer, but uh, went into travel and all that kind of stuff. Um, and many, many years ago, I played soccer. So it all sort of... Uh, ties together. Well, since you brought it up, let's talk a little about the playing days then. Of course, mm -hmm. you played in the A-League, didn't you? So kind of the <laughs> forerunner to this yeah. current USL. Uh, yeah. How would you say is the difference between what it was back then and, and what it is now? So, you know, most people would say the difference is night and day, and it's not that. The difference is like winter to summer. It's that big of a difference because um, what the that division was, let's call it the second division back then, um, was nothing like what this is. We're sitting right now in Lynn Family Stadium in Louisville that is an amazing facility that is, you know, world-class stadium here, that field is alone is about 10 times better than any field I played on back in the 90s. Um, so just like thinking about where we were then, and we were just trying to build the game, right? And this is what we always dreamed of. And now that it has actually become sort of a reality, I'm just sort of, my mind is blown thinking back on all the work that's been done to get to this point. Um, you know, look, the, the great stories, you know, we rode buses everywhere for our games back then, right? We trained at, like, you know, public parks sometimes, things like that. That's not happening nowadays, right? So that, that's, that's what I mean by it's, like, summer to winter versus night to day. Yeah, I'm not sure that one will quite hit with an Arizona audience for whom no, uh, win winter point. is. Yes, you know, <laughs> it's all relative, right? It's all relative. Of so. course, so... You spoke about some of these community kind of focused marketing. Yeah. To you, what exactly does that mean then in the context of different clubs across the league? Well, look, I think you look at what the USL clubs are doing already, and they're already engaged in their community, right? They, they want to represent soccer in their local community. Um, and they, that's what I really think about. How do we, as an organization, in uh, collaboration with our clubs, right? provide the best you know, world-class soccer experience for everyone involved, right? So that means putting on the best game you can. That means working with an academy to bring in the youth element to that. That means embracing the culture of the fans, um, embracing the culture of your community and saying, we are both um, influenced by that culture in this local community and we are representative of that culture. So, um, you know, 
how does it manifest itself in many different ways of you know events that you're putting on, how your stadium uh, works, how you're engaging with your fans on social media, um, in your marketing materials, all of that um, comes across. And so, you know, if we can continue to engage with our local communities, I think that's where the USL has that huge opportunity ahead of itself, running up to the 2026 World Cup, where the whole country is going to be about soccer. And if the USL, um, if we continue the work and the trajectory we're on, we're going to be in a perfect position to represent soccer, you know, in a lot of communities across this country. And then you're working in the New York office, aren't you? What kind of an impact do you think the New York office is having in terms of opportunities from USL's perspective and, and all of that? Well, you know, I think that as the USL expands right, and continues to grow, right, it's going to uh, continue to have presence in uh, various places, right? There are the clubs, right? They have lots of presence across the country. Um, but, you know, opening up the New York office with a media group and commercial group um, really puts us in the center of the media and commercial world. Um, and so the ability to interact and engage with all of the sort of global leaders in our areas is a really important part of this. Um, so whether that's like going and meeting with, you know, representatives from um, a, a European league or something like that, just to trade best practices on things that they're working on or something like that. Those kinds of things happen in New York because that's where they might have an office, right? Um, which isn't to say that we could also get on a Zoom call from wherever and you know do similar things, but it can sometimes be a little bit easier um, and streamlined if you can do it in person in that way. And you mentioned there with the media side of things, what kind of a importance, everyone keeps talking about the broadcast rights now with USL and mm -hmm. especially after some really big games that have been shown on ESPN this year, mm -hmm. what kind of importance do you attach from a marketing perspective to getting the broadcast deal right and making sure the product's out there on TV? Look, I think what we want to do is make sure that we have the right agreement in place that is going to help us to achieve our objectives as an organization. So, you know, what that looks like, we are still uh, working through all of that with various partners and we're in discussions with various partners, um, potential partners, um, and we're looking forward to what that will actually come out to look like. We know that there is an appetite for soccer in the United States that continues to grow. And as we run toward the World Cup, it's only going to start accelerating a lot more. So we think that the product we have, both on the field, in our stadiums, in our communities, is a very valuable one and one that we want to um, make sure that we showcase in all the right ways. And then looking at your former employer, of course, recently signed a new broadcast deal themselves with, with Apple TV. Do you think that kind of deal is going to be the future of where sports are going? Or do you think that you know, it, it might maybe be a negative in that it's taking them away from traditional sports media where other people are already tuning in. Look, I think the media landscape is changing very rapidly and probably changing more rapidly than um, people expected. Um, I, I'm sure COVID has accelerated certain things in this area as well. So, um, you know, as that landscape changes, we want to make sure that we are in a place to take advantage of it and know what those changes are, predict what they could be, and then make sure that we are where our fans are and that we can engage with our fans in the, in the right way, on the right platforms, you know, in, in, um, in the most like, um, engaging way. It sounds horrible to engage with fans in an engaging way, but that's really what it is. Like, what are fans looking for? If we know that, then we can uh, deliver that to them. 
and obviously we're here in Louisville at the mm. Summer Showcase. What kind of a role do events like this play in just generating excitement around the league more broadly? You know, the showcase does exactly what is sort of the the name on the tin, if you will, to use a, a Britishism that I know. You know, it's like it is a showcase of what the USL is and is continuing to grow into. Um, you look at this gorgeous stadium here, Lynn Family Stadium, right? It's going to be packed, right? It's a national TV audience is going to be out there. Two very good teams taking the field. Um, and the culture that the fans are going to bring is going to really be amazing. So the atmosphere will be great. That is the soccer experience. And if this is a moment for us to do an event like this, we're going to have, you know, a fan party on the night before the game. We're going to, you know, we've got our executives in to take a look and learn about it as well. So if we can use these types of events to showcase what we're about, we're hoping that it will energize fans, get people even more excited and start to, um, you know, continue to fuel the trajectory of where we're going. And then, of course, with, as you mentioned, all of the executives here, mm. what would be the main message you'd give to them in terms of how to continue to grow their clubs? Um, I, I think that a lot of our clubs are doing a really good job of really con continuing to grow their fan bases, right? They're getting better on the field. You just see the success that some of the USL clubs are having on the US Open Cup um, is where that sort of product continues to go. We're seeing now some of our academy players that are coming through and then big transfers to, um, you know, clubs in Europe or up to MLS or something. And so the message to me is, you know, we have an opportunity at the USL to really shape the future of soccer in America at all levels. And so if we can continue to sort of fuel the passion of what I call the soccer generation, if we can continue to develop uh, the next generation of talent, if we can build these kinds of cathedrals for the game, right? Um, if we can start to push for a little more equality between men's and women's game, right? You know, we're starting the Super League next year. So the W League is also uh, up and running. The final is this weekend. It's been an amazing um, experience all through this season. That's my message to them. Let's continue to do this and really um, work on sort of accelerating all of it. And then you did mention just then the women's game, obviously the Super League launching in just around a year's time now. Yep. We always talk, I guess, when we're talking about the professional game with USL, about the championship, about League One. What kind of a role do you think the Super League could play in just putting USL on the map? in the US? Well, I don't think the USL needs to be put on the map. I think we're here, right? Now it's just a question of how do we continue to um, expand our map and uh, dig our roots deeper into the various communities we're in. I think the Super League uh, is going to be an amazing project um, and it will allow us to engage with other audiences, right? other fans who are women's soccer fans. Um, and I think that it will also, though, allow us to provide um, allow our clubs really to provide a um, sort of a broader experience for their fans in their community, right? So that now if you have a club that has a men's team and a women's team, right? This is, this to me is the, the ultimate goal because it's this integrated complete club, right? With also an academy feeding into both of them, right? So now you're this complete club. Um, I think that's going to be a, a game changer in many ways. Okay, well, that's about all I've got for you. Well, thank uh, you very much. Thank you for taking the time to talk and yeah, uh, enjoy your time here in Louisville. Thanks very much. That was Greg Lallis, the Chief Marketing Officer for USL. We're going to take another quick break here to talk to you about our partners at the DraftKings Sportsbook app. 
For those of you who haven't taken a look, you can bet on all of the USL Championship action via the DraftKings Sportsbook. Do you think Rising can turn things around tomorrow night? At time of recording, Rising are a plus 400 underdog to pick up the win. Certainly gives you something to think about. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now, use promo code PHNX, make your first deposit and get a risk-free bet up to $1,000. That's promo code PHNX, only at DraftKings Sportsbook. Minimum age and eligibility restrictions apply. See the show notes for details. Well, coming up next, he's a pretty well-known former member of the Phoenix Rising front office. Now, after a spell in the NHL, he's made his way back to USL Championship, taking over as club president at FC Tulsa. The person? Of course, it's Sam Doer. Okay, so Sam, it's been a while. Yes, it Thank has. Thank you for giving us some time today. Oh, of course, my pleasure. I think uh, I was actually thinking about it today, the last time... Um, you know, I was at a, a rising game. I did come as a fan when they to support the guys. I think they beat El Paso in the PK shootout before going to Tampa, and obviously that got that got canceled. But before that, I guess my last USL game uh, as a rising employee, I think, was the the Real Monarchs uh, loss in the second round after we beat Austin in the PK shootout uh, the year we won twenty in a row. So um, you know, I was talking with some of the guys about the last time we were in Louisville. I brought obviously back a ton of great memories but yeah i think it's probably been since that uh real monarchs game that i i saw you last so great to see you yeah it's been a long long yes, time. Yes. so much has happened since then a lot I mean, yes that was pre-covid yes that was that was <laughs> uh, very pre-covid i think a year year and a half pre-covid so the world's changed quite a bit and obviously the the league has changed and uh you know i've been quite a few places but always good to see you so You've just taken this new role then over at FC Tulsa. So let's talk about a little bit about that. Um, for you, what is it that made you want to kind of step away? You'd obviously gone off into the NHL. Yeah. Coming back into USL. What made you want to come back into the sport? You know, I guess, you know, why I came back. Um, you know, I honestly, I just miss the people. People like you, I think uh, the fans, uh, you know, obviously know how passionate and engaged uh, the rising fan base is, but you know, even San Antonio, and that's what we're obviously trying to do in Tulsa as well. And so it just feels um, like that kind of tribal community. Uh, you don't necessarily get that everywhere. I really enjoyed uh, my time with, with the Coyotes, um, which actually feels like forever ago as well. Um, and the Panthers, both very unique situations. I think I'm actually far better off after, you know, going and doing that. I'm, I'm glad I did it, um, to be honest, when you kind of self-reflect about, you know, the moves and the transitions. But I'm, I'm really happy I did it. But, um, you know, the ownership group, I think, is second to none in terms of their commitment, uh, their presence. Uh, one of the brothers, the Kraft brothers, moved his whole family from Denver just to be in Tulsa. He felt that was really, really important. He's in the office every single day. Um, that's Ryan. JW is, is there. And um, so it was just a really good kind of feeling. I think, you know, um, you know, I had a lot of opportunities within the league over the last three or four years. And I don't say that to, you know, kind of pump myself up, but I was going to take the right opportunity, quite frankly, to come back. And so Tulsa checked a lot of the boxes. I just thought, um, you know, since the rebranding, they've they've made some positive steps. That said, 
Um, I like projects, uh, and I felt like there was some small things that we could do better pretty quickly to, you know, to elevate the club both on and off the field. So mainly the people is the reason I came back. And then as you look at the individual opportunity, obviously there's a lot that goes into it. There definitely have been some changes that have happened since yeah. you've come in. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah, look, I think, uh, you know, we we strive to be... I, I'm not one to come in and say, you know, we need to make change to make change. I, I'm not a big believer um, in that. And honestly, I think that's one of the biggest things I've learned over the last couple of years is patience uh, and giving people a chance. And you asked the question of, like, why back to USL? Um, honestly, there were some things I had to do in the NHL that I wasn't overly comfortable with. And for the first time, it made me better. But obviously going through COVID in terms of personnel decisions and layoffs and just tough things that were always for the bottom line, but not really humanistic. Right. And so I think the USL is just more human interaction and it feels just, you know, more personal, for lack of a better term. And so. When I came in, I honestly was going to be very, very patient because uh, there's lives and families and everything. But at the end of the day, I'm I'm driven to succeed. And my job is to get this club to where the fans and the owners and the city deserve it to be. And so um, I just thought the performance, quite frankly, on the field um, was not good enough. Um, I think, you know, if you look relative to expectations, you know, it's unfortunate, but you know, probably Rising and Tulsa are the two most underperforming, um, you know, clubs in the league. And um, so I felt like we should be better. And so uh, on the soccer side, we, we made the change. Uh, I also thought being the first to market to get a new head coach was important. I think the league's really, really competitive in terms of franchises and ownership groups. And so when you have the first job available in the season, uh, a lot of people come out of the woodwork in terms of putting their name out for it. So I thought that was important from a strategy standpoint. And then, look, the trades, you know, uh, no secret. Everybody in Tulsa knows this. We're trying to get younger and quicker and replicate the rising model, um, to be quite honest. And so uh, we needed to find uh, fullbacks, wingbacks, however you want to you know, describe it, with pace and push them up the field a little bit, like like Amadou and some of the guys that we had and, you know, Dimbaya. And I think he's under, you know, forgotten about quite a bit in some of our success. But um, so we went and got Sion and, and then we went and got Noah and, um, you know, we've signed a couple of young kids. So you know, I just felt like we needed an injection of energy um, and an injection of, of just expectation. I think everyone was like, oh, it's FC Tulsa. It's okay. We've overachieved. I think we needed to set the standard that we had at, at Rising and the culture that we had at Rising that anything less than winning every single week, you know, wasn't good enough. So um, never easy. Um, Mike was an unbelievable human being. He meant a lot to, to Tulsa. Uh, but end of the day, we, you know, we needed results. So you're talking about trying to turn this around and create a club that is achieving the kind of success that Phoenix Rising has in past yeah. seasons. What's the kind of time scale for that in your mind? At what point do you think this team goes from where it currently is to being a serious championship contender? I think next year. Um, and I'd love to play Phoenix in the final next year um, or whoever it may be from the West. But I really do think it can be next year. I think... Um, one, the coach that we're, we're about to bring in, hopefully, if we can get the jo the deal done. It's not done yet, but um, I think he's going to really elevate uh, what we do, how we play. He's going to help with player recruitment in terms of guys wanting to play for him. 
Um, you know, I think uh, the roster we're starting to build, I think the pieces we have in place this year, to be honest, there's a lot of good pieces. So I think next year, like I've, I'm on the record, our owners spend on the roster top third in the league, uh, top fourth probably in the league, top 25%. Uh, I think there needs to be more transparency, honestly, within the league about how much people are spending on on their rosters now that there's a CBA um, to really judge performance, right? I was always, Steve Trichio, I always thought, got a raw deal at Colorado Springs. You know, they were probably bottom two in the league every year in budget spend, and he was always in the playoffs somehow. Uh, and then there was some vice versa, right? So um, I think with our budget, our new head coach, if we can get that done, um, there's no reason we can't compete for, you know, we're going to start with a home playoff game. That's, you know, you kind of an evolution. Let's get a home playoff game and, and go from there. But the expectation next year is, is to compete for a title. So obviously you've come across now from the NHL, as we discussed earlier, yeah. what was the main lesson you'd say you'd learned in, in your time in the NHL that you've brought now back? Yeah, I think, um, Honestly, it's probably more on the business side. Um, now, I would say there are some sports performance and analytics side of things on, on the soccer side. You know, hockey and soccer are very similar in terms of, um, you know, a lot of things that go into that. But I think on the business side, just the commercial aspect, um, how you make money off events, how you make money off of F&B and merchandise contracts. Uh, obviously, in the NHL, we had a you know, pretty uh, robust CBA that involved escrow and the players playing into it, et cetera. And so coming into this league now with the CBA, which wasn't around, you know, when I left, uh, it's been really, really helpful. So I think just the scale of of money, uh, quite frankly, at stake night in and night out in the NHL is obviously, you know, 10 times what it is, you know, in USL, you know, per night. And so dealing with those big numbers and budgets and finances and all that goes into that. I think just from a commercialization standpoint, uh, I'm a lot better prepared to take advantage of opportunities. So you mentioned about the CBA, something new that's come in for this season, I believe that is. Um, how do you feel that's kind of changed the way you have to approach things compared to what it used to be? Yeah, great question. I, I think the CBA, I think the when it was being talked about, a lot of people are sort of nervous, and I'd say I think the clubs and the owners might have been the most nervous. I actually think it's the best thing that ever happened to the league in terms of just the standard at which you have to operate. There's more people looking at the contracts. The contracts are now more uniform. It's kind of a level playing field. I mean, back in you know San Antonio days when I was drafting up contract, it was the wild, wild west. Uh, and so I think it's more uniformed. Now you have to be you have to be a little bit careful. Uh, too, in terms of, you know, the minimum, obviously, in terms of how you equate housing and salary to get those minimum threshold. But, you know, with the new buyout rules, I know a lot of teams are, are um, you know, buying players out, but that's not using their CBA um, rights so far. So you can buy out three players within a two-year span. You can buy up out the two guys in a season. That is if it's not a mutual buyout, right? So, um, but you're never, not always going to have that mutual, you know, buyout, right? And so you got to be a little bit careful too. I think now in terms of big guaranteed deals are truly guaranteed. I think before there was more sort of ways out of them. Um, now, you know, a guaranteed deal is a guaranteed deal, or you can get out at 50%, but you only get so many gimmies, right? And so, um, I, I think it's really helped the league. And you mentioned leveling, level playing field. Yeah. Uh, I'll, I'll bring you a slightly different one on playing field, yeah. let's say. Of course, Tulsa's the team that plays on a baseball stadium. Mm -hmm. uh, they're much maligned generally across the league, yeah. those kind of playing surfaces. For you, is that somewhere that you see as a, 
long-term home for Tulsa or do you have to look really for another option? Yeah, we have to, I think, I think we can be there. This is what I would say, and this is not to throw anybody under the bus, but I, you know, I can't believe how, you know, poor, um, you know, some of the other baseball fields are just, you know, being on the road. I, I won't call it anyone in particular, but, um, the, the nice thing about ours is it is a retractable mound. So you're not playing over a mound. Uh, we also give it about seven days in terms of the, the, you know, how it transforms or kind of how they, you know, lay the sod, et cetera. So I'm actually pleasantly surprised. Uh, I thought that was going to be a big thing for me to kind of get used to and kind of like overcome, obviously coming from what we had at rising. Uh, but you know, now it's, they've lined up the stadium properly in terms of the plane surface. It's now the lawn way instead of kind of the vertical way, like it used to be. So it's a proper sized playing field, which I think is important. Our guys actually don't mind it in terms of the locker rooms are much bigger and the half of the surface is probably the best in the league. The other half is not great, but it's, I'd say the best of the baseball fields. Uh, I, I don't know if, you know, maybe we can print up some t-shirts or something like we had dollar beer night champion shirts. Maybe we can do that. But look, it's with where this league is going, the level is just too high. You look at Colorado Springs and their stadium and we need to find a stadium solution. And, um, I think that's part of why I took the job, right? I think it's exciting to look for that, to try to get a deal done. And I know our owners are, um, you know, committed to it. I'd say the stadiums get all the attention, but training facilities are just as important in this league. And I think that's the next area that the league has to improve uh, is the training facilities throughout the league. Because I do think while everyone's focused on the stadiums and rightfully so, um, the guys are at the training pitch more than they are at the stadium. And so I think that's an area too that could improve, you know, throughout the league. So how many teams then, if you look around the league, do you think have the kind of training facilities that really they, they need to? Yeah, well, look, I haven't been to all, I've been out a little bit, but I, you know, I, it wouldn't shock me if it's like half, right? Uh, I think there's probably, you know, a lawn that could go a long way, including us. Um, I think we have a very good turf field we have a very good indoor facility we have a great sports performance and health facility but our grass you know I wouldn't let my three-year-old train on it right and so that's something that you know we're working on and there's a lot of other teams that have way worse setups than we have just you know talking to the guys and getting around them so I think that's the next frontier right you see all the MLS teams coming in with the double fields and the cameras and the sports performance you know you've seen kind of the cut copy pace model I think that's next for for the USL teams I think uh, stadiums are great and I think that's best for the league as a whole but I think for the players the training facility is kind of that next step you're also coming back now to a USL that's Putting more emphasis on the women's game in particular, yeah, yeah. we've had the W League coming to a close now, their first season, uh, the Super League launches in just about a year. Is that something that you can see FC Tulsa getting involved in? I think if we have a, a soccer-specific stadium, 100%. Obviously, the baseball stadium, we have our own struggles in terms of just dates. I think it would be nearly impossible, but... Uh, look, I think the women's game, the level is, is growing as well. The W League, I watched a couple of those. Some, you know, what Minnesota is doing is is unbelievable, right? And so, um, I think there's a lot of growth. I think there's a lot of runway there. You know, we've even talked about NWSL, and does that make sense? Uh, just trying to aspire for the the top top level. Uh, but I think the Super League is going to be a great league as well. And I think as we see it unfold, 
you'll kind of learn about kind of the differences between Super League and NWSL and maybe you let some others take the plunge first to kind of see how it operates. But 100%, I think if we have and we get a soccer-specific stadium done in the next, let's call it five years, I think it could be less, it could be more, but let's call it five, I think you'll see us with a, a professional women's team for sure. And then looking, I think even back when you were last in the league, there was talk about this and it keeps being talked yeah. about and keeps being talked about. But the two big words of promotion and relegation, yeah. uh, it doesn't feel as though there's any real progress on it, at least not publicly. Yeah. Uh, do you I mean, I think it's pretty simple. I don't I look, this is I'm pretty outspoken. So um, this isn't hard. Uh, I think this is look, we the league. It's never going to be a point until League One gets bigger right? 20 teams, let's call it that the top three and the bottom three, like you see in the premier league is, is going to happen, right? Or the top three and then the playoff with the one going up. I don't think that's going to, to happen where it's three down and three up, but I think it's pretty easy. I think the bottom team in the East plays the bottom team in the West. The loser of that plays the winner of league one. And that game is for promotion. I, I don't think that's very difficult to figure out. Um, I think it's pretty easy to package it up, sell it to a sponsor, go to a media partner. I think everyone would watch, you know, definitely the second game. I think the first game, depending on who it is, there could be some intrigue as well, right? But, um, you know, you I think your podcast is sponsored by DraftKings or something like that. Um, I'm sure betting companies would love that, right? And they could do something around that. So to me, this isn't overly difficult, um, but that's just, you know, one man's perspective. But I think it would be great for um, the league, like the talent in League One, Look at Aaron Malloy at Memphis. Um, there's some other, you know, really good players in the league. Obviously, you guys have have Greg Hurst, but you know, I think there's. I'm watching League One games all the time for players right now. So, um, I think it would be great. I think a League Cup would be fantastic as well. I think the championship team should go on the road to League Two or League One um, teams. I think that would be a great atmosphere. And um, so that's that's my viewpoint. I may be in the minority, but I don't feel like it's overly difficult to be honest. Now, just to look back at your former team, of course, yeah. Phoenix Rising's had yeah. quite a few changes since yeah. uh, since you left. Brand new stadium, even. Um, what, what are your thoughts on Wild Horse Pass? Yeah, I mean, I haven't been to it, so it'd be uh, it would be naive for me to judge it. I, I look, I I think the amenities are probably things that the fans enjoy, right? I, scoreboard, man. What we would I I remember our first scoreboard was like, you know, I don't know, the size of a eight by ten photo, right? If you remember. Um, so I think that's probably amazing, right? I think parking, I'm sure, is better. Um, I think there's some other amenities that, you know, I'm not even aware of. Uh, that said, I think, you know, winning helps, but I think they've won at Wild Horse Pass, right? I mean, like, let's not – this has been a tough year for them, but previous to this year, they've had some very good seasons, obviously not the success in COVID and, you know, that ultimately the, the big one. But – It'd be really hard, I think, uh, to recreate the magic that we created at, you know, uh, Casino Arizona Field. I think just the setting of the highway in the background, Tempe Marketplace, being near ASU. And I thought there was something charming, quite frankly, about the dust and the parking lot and kind of it was like Field of Dreams almost. Right. Um, and so I think it's look. You, you guys live there. I know that the city's expanded. I still have friends that obviously live there, but. To me, you know, um, you know, I think Tempe and Scottsdale are kind of the places to be, right? I, I lived in Chandler. I had a house in Chandler. I love Chandler. 
it's a little bit of a different demographic uh, that you're going to get to the games than we got, you know, uh, at Casino Arizona Field. So I see it both ways. I, I know the, 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 the training facility and the playing surface is just unbelievable, right? The national team's there. I don't think we would have got the national team at Casino Arizona Field. So I see it both ways. Um, but it's just, you know, those nights, I think, in Tempe are going to be hard to, to replicate um, unless, you know, they can get something, you know, done. But I'm not close enough to the business, but those are, you know, my thoughts. Okay. And uh, one thing that's definitely not gone down well with the fans lately, of course, is the absence of something that uh, you did allude to it earlier with the T-shirt yeah. that was made. Yeah. But the uh, the lack of dollar beer night that yeah. just it's kind of gone away ever since COVID. And I think some of that has to do with wild horse pass from what i understand and so that's obviously tough i think um you know our, our last situation obviously wasn't ideal either right i mean ask some of the supporter groups about how they were treated there right um so it's it's tough i mean these stadium solutions are not easy but it's kind of like you know you got to pick your poison um you know I, we're definitely burning dollar beer night somehow some way to tulsa i'll tell you that uh i don't know we're gonna win what did we win? 18, 19 straight. And then the Monarchs kind of, you know, they ended that. But um, we're, we're going to do it because I think just the buzz, the, the type of people you get out to the games, the casual fan. And um, so I think it's important. But, yeah, look, I there was something, you know, actually I was talking to, to Waz the other day. Um, and he said there was just something about Friday nights in, in Phoenix or Tempe or wherever, you know, however the phrase was. You just you knew you were going to wear the black jerseys. It was going to be dollar beer night and you were going to get three points. Right. And so um, those were magical. And I do think that's probably why um, it's been tough for for, you know, I think they're having a ton of success, to be quite honest, from uh, a revenue and a tickets. And I know it's a bigger stadium to fill up, et cetera. But. I know, you know, just trying to follow the dots, you know, the atmosphere and some of those things is it's really tough when there are things you probably want to do that they can't come out and say because, you know, you don't want to have your doors locked the next day, right? Bad, you know, talk your tenant. But I'm sure there's things that they've wanted to do that, um, you know, they've been unable to do. And, and um, I'd love to see Dollar Beer Night back in Phoenix, put it that way. <laughs> One thing at least that I know you will have been able to see, you've been watching the games, yeah. I'm sure. yeah. Where do you think it's going wrong on the field for rising this year? It's a great question. I think, um, look, I, I have a lot of respect um, for the staff, for the player. I mean, look, there's a lot of players still there that I know very, very well, right? Um, and obviously, you know, the front office, um, it's amazing how many front office people they've held on to for so long. I think that speaks to the club and, and the culture, I think, um, to me. Uh, I think a lot of their big time players, um, you know, haven't produced. Now, is that on the players? This I, I don't know. I'm not close enough to it to understand kind of, you know, you watch it more than I, to be honest. But, you know, I do think um, I think the outside backs, honestly, we talked about that a little bit earlier, is probably the area that they miss the most. I just always remember us having and Amadou Dia, Mustafa Dumbaya. I mean, there's others you could you could look back at the roster, but I just Saad, uh, Tristan Blatt. Think about that championship year when we here in Tucson, calling for like that back line was unbelievable, right? And so yeah, we were scoring a bunch of goals, but you were able to do that because the left back and the right back were bombing up the wings. We were attacking with six. You had the six and the eight and the two center backs that were just clearing everything out. And you know we may give up one goal, get caught, you know maybe once a game, but 
um, for the most part, when we were attacking with six, we were we were dictating the game. And so um, I think kind of just the speed of the team. Um, you know, I, I watched the Vegas game, uh, and I missed the first half, so I know that was like a two different games, right? But like what Marcus Epps did in that second half, that reminded me of, of old Phoenix Rising, right? That's Junior Flemings or Solo Asante just getting up and down and, and creating and making things happen. So I'd say that's one. And then, look, um, the number nine position, right? I think Rising has always had a just killer number nine, right? How good was Adam John? How good was, you know, you could rotate Cortez and Freighter and Didier in that role back when, you know, we were going. Obviously, they have, they've had success with number nines, you know, since then. I think just that prototype, I call it a rising nine because they've always had that just hold up play, let the guys on the wings get in behind, you know, Santi and I guess Marcus it would be now and, you know, finish and make it happen. So I think that number nine to play through, and those outside backs are probably the, the biggest area. And um, I also think, you know, to be completely honest, I think the league's a hell of a lot tougher now than it was uh, ever before. And I, I don't think that's an excuse. I think if you talk to anybody within the organization, um, I think they know it should be better uh, than what it is. Um, but I, I think if you're looking on the field, that would be my, my feedback, to be honest. That said, it won't shock me if – Somehow, I know it'll shock some others, but it won't shock me if they make the playoffs. And this is like the opposite rising year where we dominate the regular season and get knocked out. If they find a way in, it's almost a, a wounded dog, right? And I'll tell you, I'll still tell you, if you go get every, go talk to every Western Conference president uh, that's here, if they're the one or the two seed, I don't think they want to see, you know, rising coming to visit them in round one. So I know the rest of the league's rooting against rising. They don't want them in. But if they get in, it could be that that switch year, right, where they get in, they're the wounded dog, and they finally kind of, you know, make their run. So tomorrow night's a big game uh, for them, and, um, you know, I'm, I'm excited to watch it. Of course, there was one game in the recent bad streak of just poor performances yeah. in general where rising, it wasn't really their fault, let's put it that way, in terms of the number of COVID cases that yeah. they had. Putting out a team that yeah. you know ultimately had what seven academy kids yeah, in the crazy. squad that it was day, crazy. and then you know yesterday as well, you have Colorado Springs only able to put one player on the bench. Do you think that you know both of those games really should have gone ahead in the way that they did? Look, great question. I don't know how much of last night was COVID and injury, so I I, I don't know if you've seen it. Have you? Have they said anything? I, I saw the statement, which different story for a different day, but. Um, Here's what I would say the difference might be. If last night wasn't COVID and it was just injury, and I think a lot of it was injury, they may have some illness, but I don't want to speculate, right? But my sense is part of it is just seems like Colorado Springs plays every other night. That said, I from a they play again Friday, by the way. I don't know if you've looked. Um, I was looking. I was just interested. They, from a business perspective, have made the decision like we used to at Rising to play a bunch of Friday night summer games because they're selling them out. They're getting 8,000 fans and it's great for the business. It may not be great for the soccer side. Right. And so I think some of it, quite frankly, not to be too harsh is a little bit self-inflicted where they've scheduled all these Friday night home games for the summer. Cause it's very good for their bottom line. But then, yeah, you're going to, when you play that Friday night, you're going to probably be the first team up to go play a road game on Tuesday or Wednesday because you have that extra day of rest and, 
you know, that's the way that it works. Obviously, I think last night was even a COVID reschedule. So it's like the second. So I don't really know how you reschedule or reschedule. Um, but I do think this is where depth and academy come into play, right? I mean, I so I think last night's a little different than the rising situation. My two cents, I've never seen Phoenix Rising duck a game before. I, I know that was kind of out there as... Phoenix Rising's not scared of, of New Mexico United, right? I, I think it's quite the opposite. So um, that was a head-scratcher to me, me personally. I, I Look, I know results weren't going their way at the time, et cetera, although I think they had just beat Hartford. Um, Phoenix Rising doesn't doesn't back away from anyone. I know a lot of has changed, and the res, like I said, the results haven't gone how they wanted, but that club is still a pretty proud club with a proud fan base, and... You know, I, I don't think Phoenix is ducking a game at New Mexico. I, I really don't. So I think they're a little bit two different instances, I think, um, my personal opinion. So I would have handled the Phoenix game a lot different. Um, last night I'd need a little bit more info, but I think last night's just, you know, a COVID reschedule, these tons of Friday night games. Like I, I the 4th of July game was their own game, I think, that they scheduled. And I think that was part of the stretch where they played like – Friday, Monday, right? And both were at home. So I think part of it's on, you know, club when you're putting in the schedule to, you know, think about the soccer side a little bit and not just the business side. Well, just to move on to a little bit more of a positive note yeah. to help round us out here, of course, back here in Louisville, is it bringing back memories of that 2018 season? Yeah, I mean, look, I think um, I, that was, you know, I, I really thought we were going to win that match, find a way. I, I mean, still, I think it'll be tough to top that Orange County match and rising history. I mean, there may be some better. You, you, you've seen them all, but I think that's when the club really kind of arrived, uh, that Orange County with, I mean, the traveling fans, right? That picture is, was it Amadou throwing the ball in with all the fans in the background? I mean, that was unbelievable, right? And to win that the way we did, I think Cortez still the fastest goal maybe in USL conference final history. It was like, what, two, three minutes in. Uh, then the way Didier finished it off, I mean, um, you know, team had a ton of confidence, and then it's Didier's last game, right? You can't ask for more. I think one of the first games on ESPN. I think the group was really confident. I think two things happened. I think, obviously, Musa got hurt late in the year, and that was a big, big blow. And then Cortez went down in that Orange County game, and that really changed things, I think, with having to play Freighter up top. And it wasn't that Freighter was not a, a you know, very capable player, and he's gone on to a nice career, but I think it was – the way the team wanted to play, Chris was was vital. Uh, and so, um, you know, Waz was playing through, I think, a broken collarbone, you know. So, yeah, I mean, you think back to that season, I think that was getting hot at the right time, peaking towards the end of the year. Um, I still think the season after, look, 2018 would have been really sweet for Didier, right? Like just the perfect storybook ending. He never want to lose his last game. I think the last next year was more painful, uh, to be honest, because I think everyone expected us to tail off when when Dids left and to win 20 straight and just the magical. I still remember when we clinched the the regular season trophy in New Mexico. Joey scored that goal and it felt like a win, even though it was only a point. And the team just seemed like they were going to find a way no matter what. Right. Even the Austin game had absolutely nothing found a way in PKs. I think AJ put it in and you just felt like, all right, that was it. That was the tough one. And so 2019, I thought was tougher to swallow than 2018, but yeah, a lot of good memories. And, uh, you know, I think a lot of it has to do with the people and the players and the fans and everything that went into it. I'll leave you with a possibly easy, possibly tough one to finish this off. Yeah. What is it you miss the most from the Valley? Oh, it's a good, good question. I look, 
I've said this. I think the engagement of the fans is second to none, even MLS, right? Like LAFC just signed, I think uh, you're Welsh, right? Big one, right? Um, it just, yeah. <laughs> they just signed Gareth Bale and some of the, like, even if you go look at their social post, like, it's very, it's, it's higher than rising. Don't get me wrong. But the engagement from a USL fan base is second to none. There may be bigger crowds, New Mexico, Louisville tomorrow night, et cetera. But in terms of people that are passionate and care about the club, um, it's second to none. Like, that engagement level and that care is really hard to find. I personally enjoyed it. I loved interacting with them. Uh, and so I think I miss that the most, the people. I think it's a very unique market with just all the people from all different places that then just call Phoenix home. Um, so I miss that a ton. And it's easy living, right? The weather and just uh, it's an unbelievable place, really special to me and my family. So I miss it a lot. But one thing I'd say is definitely just the engagement from the fan base. That's really hard to recreate. Okay, well, Sam, thank you for your, all of your time here. Yeah, of and, course. Uh, hope you enjoy the rest of your time here in Louisville. Yeah, thank you. Appreciate it. That was FC Tulsa's Sam Doa. Remember, we'll have coverage throughout the festivities here in Louisville and, of course, some footballing coverage to boot about the match. Make sure to head on over to our website, gophnx.com, and become a member of the family. That'll get you access to all our online content, as well as our members' Discord, another place for Arizona sports fans to gather. You'll also receive either a free T-shirt from the PHNX Locker, or you'll pick up your first month for just 50 cents. The big summer showcase game between Phoenix Rising and Louisville City coming up at 4pm tomorrow. Make sure to enjoy the match with Four Peaks, the favourite craft beer of PHNX and Phoenix Rising as well. Whether you're looking to grab a kilt lifter, hop knot or wow, remember to enter our toast of the month sweepstakes at gophnx.com. And of course, remember, you must be 21 or older to enjoy and should always enjoy responsibly. And of course, after the game, make sure to join myself and Ramon. We'll be breaking down what happened, how it happened, and where Rising goes from here. Plus, we'll have the instant reaction from the dugout. I'll see you then. Until then, goodbye.